Well, good morning. It is good to see you on this first Sunday of 2024. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. It's an exciting day here at Central, uh, not just because it's the first Sunday of a new year, but uh, in our next hour at 1130, uh, our uh, new Spanish campus, Central and Espanol, uh, officially launches uh, this week. And so over that, actually, amen. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, they'll be kind of soft launching, just kind of getting some keeks out. And then uh, in two weeks uh, is our uh, large launch where we are making a big push in our community. Uh, and uh, it's our hope. We have literally tens of thousands of neighbors uh, who their heart language is Spanish. And we want to be able to reach them. Uh, we want them to know Jesus. And so uh, I hope you'll pray for Pastor Josh and for our core group. We've got about 30 people who've been meeting together uh, since the middle part of this last year, uh, and I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do uh, over there. So I hope that you'll be praying as well. Uh, so Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We are jumping into a new series. Um, you know, uh, missiologists, those who kind of uh, study what's happening uh, when it comes to uh, the mission of God in our world and in our nation, uh, they have started to talk about what's happening in the United States uh, a little differently, that uh, we would no longer classify ourselves as uh, a nation that is predominantly Christian. In fact, what they're saying is that we are a nation that is the term they're using post-Christian. That we are a, a nation that has been influenced by the gospel, has been influenced by the church, and now has begun to shift another way. If you need a picture of what this looks like in the future, you can look to England. You can look to London as a post-Christian society. There are literally millions of people who woke up this morning who 10 to 15 years ago, they would have called themselves a Christian. They would have been in a church, and yet for one reason or another, they no longer identify that way. There are millions more who are waking up this morning who not only are they not going to church, but they really have no connection or really even no understanding of who Jesus is or what the gospel is. Now, this all could be bad news and it could all sound like doom and gloom, except for the promise that Jesus made that I will build my church, right? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, well how might the Lord be leading us to, to reach our neighbors, to reach our community, to, to reach the nation, to reach the nations in this moment? And I don't think that it's really all that radical. It's not a new methodology. It's not a new gospel presentation. It's not a new this or new that. In fact, I think it's actually an ancient practice. You see, if we're going to reach our neighbors, then the way that we do it is a way that Jesus was reaching people and the way that the church has reached people for millennia. And it's through this. It's through radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. Now, you might say, well, that's strange. That's not where I thought that would be. But here's what we know, that those who, who have left the church, those who have walked away from the faith, the number one reason they identify for walking away from the faith is they didn't feel like they belong. In fact, those who have never been a part of the faith, the number one thing they say that could, could make them interested in Jesus is a relationship with a genuine Christ follower. So if we're going to reach our neighbors, if we're going to reach our coworkers, if we're going to reach the nations, then it, it very well may begin at your dining room table. It very well may begin 
in your neighbor's dining room table. Very well may begin in practicing radical hospitality. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at a few pictures from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at Jesus eating meals, and what did that look like? You might think, uh, or maybe you've never thought about this idea of Jesus and his eating habits or eating practices, but what we see all through the Scriptures, whenever you pay attention all through the Gospels, is that Jesus was regularly having meals with people. And what we see as we look at the Gospel of Luke is that these meals were a big deal. That we are learning something in these meals. And what we're doing is we're being invited to experience the grace of Jesus at the table with him and then to show that grace with others as well. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at verses 27 to 32. And as we do, we're going to see this. We're going to see that Jesus came for sinners like us to make us righteous like him. Jesus came for sinners like us. He came for sinners like you and me to make us righteous like him, like only he is. So look with me here at Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. We're going to read down to verse 32. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And that's good news for us. Look with me here, Luke chapter five, starting in verse 27, the spirit says this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And Father, we are not. We confess this morning that we, we need your mercy. We need your grace in our hearts and in our lives today. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would show us your grace by speaking to us through your word, even now. Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus came for sinners like us to make us righteous like him. As we, we look at this passage, we see uh, kind of a few different scenes in, uh, in this picture uh, from the ministry of Jesus. And the first is this, we see that Jesus came for sinners. That Jesus came for sinners. Now, in Jesus' day, this would have been a scandalous truth. It, no self-respecting Jewish man wanted to be around sinners. They certainly would not have admitted it and said, yeah, I like to be around sinners. This is especially true of a Jewish man who was thought to be some kind of rabbi, thought to be some kind of teacher. This is, we see Jesus called rabbi by his disciples. No self-respecting rabbi would want to be around the unclean, would want to be around sinners or anyone who would admit to being a sinner. And yet what we see in this picture is that's exactly what Jesus does. That Jesus comes to be with and he comes to rescue sinners. Now this meal is taking place early on in Jesus's ministry. And the way that the gospel writer, the way that Luke has structured this passage is he has put it right on the heels of two really important miracles that teach us something about Jesus. So first, if you look a little earlier in Luke chapter five, you see where Jesus heals a man with leprosy. 
Now, what's so amazing about that is not only that Jesus healed a man with leprosy, but when Jesus touches his leprosy, he doesn't become leprous, but the leprous man is healed. And so that's a picture of that Jesus, he can touch the broken, he can touch the sick, he can touch the sinner, and he doesn't walk away sinful, the sinner walks away changed. The the broken walks away healed. But then uh, there's another scene right before uh, this meal. And it's where the friends bring their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus. And there's there's too many people in in the room and they can't get him in. And so what do they do? They they go on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and they they lower him down and Jesus heals him. And so on the heels of Jesus doing the unfathomable, he does the unthinkable. He goes and he calls a tax collector to follow him. Now, why is this so unthinkable? Well, tax collectors, they were despised members of society. Rome was occupying the promised land at this point. So tax collectors, they were not just seen as people who were friendly to Rome. These were the ones who were supporting Rome. They they were the ones who were supporting the occupiers. In fact, the Jews of the day, they were looking for a Messiah Messiah who was going to come and he was going to run the Roman authorities out of the land and was going to reestablish God's kingdom on that piece of property. See, for the self-respecting Jew, a tax collector was a traitor in two ways. First, he was a traitor to his people. He was a traitor to his people because he levied taxes that supported the, the Roman occupiers. But then what made it even worse is that the way that tax collectors made their money was not that the Roman authorities paid them, but instead they were free to levy as much as they wanted to, to take as much as they wanted to in taxes. As long as Rome got their cut, they could take the rest so they could enrich themselves. So Jews saw tax collectors as a traitor to their people. But second, Jews saw tax collectors as a traitor to God because Rome stood for everything that was opposed to God and his will and his work in the world. And so when a Jew saw a tax collector, they saw someone that wasn't just working against them, but he was also working against God. And yet this is who Jesus comes to. This is who Jesus calls. Look at verse 27. We meet this tax collector. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now this Levi, this is who we know better as Matthew. You flip over to Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, you'll you'll see this is the case. It was common in the day for Jewish men to have uh, two names that they would go by. So when we read Levi, we know that this is Matthew. And this interaction takes place at a tax booth, right in the middle of what makes Levi so repulsive to the Jews. Jesus doesn't wait to call Levi to follow him until Levi is away from his tax booth. No, Jesus goes right into the middle of what makes him so repulsive. And what does he do? He says, hey, you follow me. Now, as an aside, what makes this even more interesting is where this tax booth was located. See, Mark chapter two, verses 13, 14, and 15, give us some context clues about where Levi's booth would have been. And what we know is that Levi's booth was near water, and it was actually right on the way where fishermen would come to sell their fish. So most likely what Levi was doing is the way that he made his money was by taxing fishermen on the fish that they caught. Now, if he tried to tax me, he wouldn't make any money. I don't catch fish, right? Uh, That's why I go fishing, not catching. But if you think back, the first disciples that Jesus calls, Peter, James, and John, what is their profession? They fish. 
And so then Jesus calls Matthew, he calls Levi, this tax collector, who probably knew Peter, James, and John, and they knew him because he had extorted money from them. But then you keep going, and later you'll read where Jesus calls Simon the Zealot as one of his disciples. Do you remember what a zealot is? A zealot was an anarchist. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And so you've got Levi, the tax collector. On one side, he's got the fisherman that he has taken advantage of. And on the other side, he's got the zealot who uh, is radically opposed to everything that he stands for to the point that he was ready to go to war over it. Jesus knew what he was doing, and yet Jesus calls Levi all the same. See, what this does is this, it highlights the unmerited nature of grace. Levi had done nothing to earn or deserve that call. Jesus goes to that tax booth, and he doesn't say, Levi, if you will clean your act up, then you can follow me. He doesn't say, Levi, if, if you will get right, then you can follow me. No, what does he say? He says, follow me. Follow me. Come after me. Levi did nothing to earn this call. He did nothing to earn this grace. If there was someone who didn't deserve it, it was him. Yet what we see is this is exactly the kind of person Jesus came for. He came for a sinner who really isn't all that different from us to make us righteous like him. Now, these two words, follow me, this is the essence of the Christian life. It's not about measuring up or acting right, but it's about following Jesus where he calls. But Levi didn't have it together. He was the last one that we might expect to have it together, but what does Jesus do? He calls him anyway. He says, come follow me. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't only have time for those who have it all together? Aren't you glad that, that Jesus doesn't only have time for those who look the part or who act the part? No, Jesus came for the tired. He came for the weary. He came for the broken. He came for the messed up. What's so amazing to me about this is he did not come just to save us, but he uses us to accomplish his will in the world. But that's who Jesus came for. Now look at verse 28. You, you see Levi's response. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. And the way this is written, you get the idea, you get the sense of it, that there's an immediacy to it, right? That he hears, follow me, and he says, yes, sir. He gets up and he goes. See, once he saw the beauty and the grace of Jesus, nothing else mattered. Once you see Jesus clearly, he becomes irresistible. That's our great need. Our great need is to see Jesus clearly. The problem is, is that oftentimes our view of Jesus gets clouded by the things of the world. Our view of Jesus gets clouded by our own hearts, right? That we, we start looking for this or that. We, we start giving into sin or we start doing this. And so suddenly, rather than Jesus being irresistible, Jesus becomes cloudy, he, he becomes difficult to see. His glory begins to be diminished in our eyes. Not in reality, but in our eyes, suddenly things become more attractive than Jesus. And so we have this constant call to us that we need to, we need to keep fighting against that and keep looking to Jesus. We need to fight to see Jesus accurately. And this Jesus that we see accurately, that he, we see that he came for sinners. 
He didn't just come for sinners like Levi. He didn't just come for sinners like Peter, James, and John. He, he didn't just come for sinners like me. He came for sinners like you. He, he came for sinners like us. And what's so amazing is Jesus did not just come to rescue sinners, but Jesus welcomes sinners. He came for sinners and he welcomes sinners. Verse 28 ends with Levi following Jesus. Verse 29 begins with Jesus following Levi to his home. Look at verse 29. And Levi made, a great, made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. See, Levi invites Jesus into the most intimate space that he has. He invites him right into the middle of his home. And what does he do? He throws a party in Jesus's honor. Now, this apparently was not a party that was just thrown together where he ran by the grocery store and grabbed some fried chicken and some sweet tea. No, this is something that, that he had been waiting. He, he had been storing up food, right? He, he had been uh, waiting for this to happen. Not necessarily for Jesus, but he's just been waiting to throw a party. It says that, that he threw him a great feast. That great feast, it's this idea of abundant provision that the tables are full of food. But what's more interesting than the fact that he threw a great feast is who he invited. It says he invited a large company, and who was in this company? Tax collectors and others. Now, we can, we can make some assumptions about this group. It's probably people who are seen as sinners and unclean. It's people known for their sin and tolerating other people's sins. These are people that everyone knew who they were. Everyone knew what they did. These are not the kind of people that you wanted to be seen in public with, and yet that's who Levi invites. See, what it looks like is that Levi's trying to reach his friends, and Jesus wasn't afraid to go. A.T. Robertson, he, he was a, a New Testament scholar in the mid-1900s. He, he wrote this. He said it was a motley crew that Levi brought together. But he showed courage as well as loyalty to Jesus. See, Levi knew what his friends needed, and what his friends needed was Jesus. And how does Levi go about introducing his friends to Jesus? Radical hospitality. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop by. He, he kicks back and he feasts with them. Maybe you've been invited to a party before, and you think, I've got to go, but I don't want to stay long right? Uh, I never have. I've never been invited to one of those. Uh, but let's, I've heard about people who have. Um, and what I hear is that maybe you, you pull up and you look at your wife or you look at your husband and you say, hey, we're not here long, all right? We're doing one loop. You get a deviled egg, a cookie, a glass of water. You, you say hello and then you leave, right? We're not here long. But then what happens is you end up staying longer, right? Uh, they end up pulling out the karaoke machine, the Coke Zero's there, and you just... That's not what Jesus does. Je Jesus doesn't just pop in, say, hey, guys, and then leave. He didn't just pop in and preach to them and then leave. No, what does he do? He says that he reclines at table with them. We get this picture that Jesus sits down and... He, he's not there to just treat them as a project. Right? He's there to treat them as people made in the image of God. 
He's there to enjoy their company. So to help you kind of get this picture in your mind, this, what it looks like here is that this feast, we know this from what the Pharisees say, this feast was too big to take place inside. The Pharisees weren't able to see what was going on. So it was probably in the courtyard of Levi's rather large home. And there would have been tables that would have been low tables on the ground set in a U. And in the middle of that U would have been the host, would have been Levi, and it also would have been the guest of honor. It says that they were reclining at table. Now, when you and I think reclining, uh, maybe we think laying back. That's not what reclining at table was. Reclining at table was these men were laying on their, uh, their bellies with their heads toward the table, right? It's a, like a picture of a middle school girl on a phone call, right? Laying on her bed, legs in the air. That, that's, I'm not saying that's what it was, but I'm saying that's what it, that's what it would look like. And they're reclining at table, they're having a good time, right? That Jesus is enjoying them, and they are enjoying Jesus. You might think that sounds really weird. And that might be because you have a wrong view of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus enjoys you? That, That in Christ, God doesn't just tolerate you, but he loves you. He enjoys you, right? He, he wants you to abide with him. And so with this, but Jesus, he's enjoying this meal. They're having a great time, but not everyone is happy. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, some people, their spiritual gift is criticism, you know? Uh, you just uh, heard a, a story of a pastor one time. A lady came up to him, and she had been complaining since he had been at the church, and he looked at her, and he said, why don't you just stand up and lead us in a word of criticism, you know? Uh, and that's, that's what happens here, right? The, the Pharisees, they're upset, and they're not upset because they're having a party, They're not upset because they're serving good food. They're upset because of who was on the guest list. And they're not even upset that they weren't on the guest list because they wouldn't have gone even if they were invited. But they're upset that this tax collector and his group of sinners, they would invite Jesus and Jesus would go. This must prove that Jesus is a fake. This must prove that, that Jesus is a phony. So they grumble. Well, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, why, why do you eat and drink with people like that? You know, just like today, sharing a meal implied a, a kind of close association. Right? When you, you share a meal together, there, there's something powerful that takes place in that. This is why like a first date is typically it includes a meal. This is also why typically when you, you walk into a restaurant, you, you don't just go sit down with anyone, right? You don't just see a family and think, they look nice, I'm going to go pull up with them, right? Um, it, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't do that because eating together, it implies some kind of closeness. Scott Barchi, he's a New Testament scholar, he, he writes this. He said, mealtimes 
were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Understand this. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus did everything with intentionality. Jesus was not caught off guard by cultural norms of the moment. No, Jesus ate a meal with sinners because what the Bible tells us is Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a a friend to us. Understand, Jesus, he wasn't just welcomed by sinners, but we get this picture here that he welcomed sinners to himself. He still welcomes sinners to himself. Now, if you look at verses 29 and 30, there's this subtle shift. Look at verse 29. This is Luke kind of narrating through it. He says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There's a large company of tax collectors and others. Then look at verse 30. Look at the question that they ask, that the Pharisees ask. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and suddenly it's not others? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They wanted to highlight what it was that Jesus was doing. If this man will eat with sinners, he must be a sinner. But if you flip back to Luke 5 earlier in this passage, Jesus can heal the leprous and not become leprous. Jesus can heal the sinner and not be a sinner. They wanted to highlight, this Jesus, he's doing the unthinkable. This would be like eating with a terrorist today. You just don't do that. Why would you do that? Well, Jesus eats with sinners because that is exactly who Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save sinners. Paul says, Jesus came to save sinners of which I am the foremost. That's why Jesus came. And part of Jesus saving sinners is Jesus welcoming sinners as he forgives them and he changes them. See, Jesus came for sinners. Jesus welcomed sinners. Then finally we see this, that Jesus changes sinners. Jesus changes sinners. This passage ends with a well-known saying from Jesus. Gets right to the heart of his mission. Understand, Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good example for us to follow. Jesus is the Savior who came to save sinners. He came for sinners like me. He came for sinners like you to make us righteous like him. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them. They ask, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What I love about this answer is one, the Pharisees weren't talking to Jesus. Verse 29, it says they asked his disciples, so you should have this picture of their reclining at the table. The Pharisees are probably standing on the outside of the courtyard. They're looking in. Maybe the disciples are up doing some things. And you've got to think that Jesus is just eating this meal with a smile on his face because he knows he's making the Pharisees mad, right? He knows he's making the religious leaders mad. And, and he almost has like kind of this watchest grin on your face, on his face, you know, like, y'all just wait. This is about to get good, right? Wait, wait for the cake. This is going to be better. And so the Pharisees, they asked the disciples, why do you eat and drink with sinners? They could have asked Jesus. They could have yelled to Jesus, why are you eating with 
with tax collectors and sinners. But they don't, they ask his disciples. Maybe Jesus could hear. Maybe he couldn't hear, but he knew the question. And so Jesus rolls over, stands up. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus uses a tool here that he uses oftentimes in his confrontation with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders. And we just call it this, intentional ambiguity. Jesus is intentionally vague in what he says. He says, I haven't come for the well, I've come for the sick. The reason it's ambiguous is because it's up to the Pharisees and the scribes to decide, are they the well or are they the sick? Now, they would have seen themselves as well, right? They follow the letter of the law. Here's the problem, though. Their behavior was good, but their hearts were sick and they couldn't see it. They, they were self-satisfied. Yeah, that's a dangerous place to be in your walk with Jesus. To be impressed with yourself. We're seven days into 2024, and maybe you have read your Bible all seven days. And you're thinking, man, I, I've got it. Right? I'm not going to miss any days. This is easy. Leviticus is coming. Just wait. <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe you're, you're walking through that 15-week. Hopefully, you're walking through the 15-week reading plan with us. You read your five days this week, and you thought, man, I'm pretty good. Right? I'm, I'm okay. Brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous place to be. That is a dangerous place to be. And this doesn't mean that we should walk around just being self-deprecating all the time. But what it means is that anytime we see growth in our life, what we have to understand is that is God's grace at work in us. See, maturity in the Christian life is not seeing yourself as more and more holy. Maturity in the Christian life is seeing more and more and more how much you need God's grace. Right? That, that's what it means to be a mature follower of Christ. He tells the Pharisees that the sick are the ones who need a physician. Look in verse 32. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He clarifies what he means here. He says, the, the well, the, those who believe that they are righteous, and the sick, they are the sinners. But the answer to for sin, it's not better behavior. It's not some kind of emotional support. It's repentance. It's turning from sin and trusting God's grace and, and his forgiveness. Yesterday, from time to time, me and my daughter will go on daddy-daughter dates. And we went to one of the finest eating establishments around, Chicken Salad Chick. Um, I, I'm a big fan. Uh, I get a lot of ridicule for it. Um, but... Uh, I just love Jesus more. Um, and so we're, we're sitting there. I'm eating my jalapeno holly. She's eating her classic carol. We're talking about what's going on at school. And she said, Daddy, I'm excited uh, because this week I will get an emotional support pickle. So, ex excuse me? <laughs> we are homeschooling now. Uh, I, I said, a, a what? She said, an emotional support pickle. Huh? She said, yeah, I did all my homework, so I'll, I'll get an emotional support pickle. I said, Nora, what are you going to do with an emotional support pickle? It's like, do you eat it? <laughs> what do you do? She said, no, 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 it's a stuffed animal. It's a, it's a pickle.
pillow. It's a stuffed pickle that is just called an emotional support pickle as a joke. Okay. <laughs> it's funny. The answer to sin is not an emotional support pickle. It's not, it's not a group. The answer to sin is the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him. What he says here is we repent. We turn. We make a turn from our sin and we, we turn to Christ. Now this, this would have been a radical departure for the Pharisees. There's been a threat to their way of life, right? They thrived on this stuff. They thrived on keeping the law. But what we see here is that all the law keeping they've attempted is worthless because their hearts don't match it. They need repentance and they need grace. It's amazing to think about how far medicine has come in the last 100 years, or even the last 50 years, or even the last 20 years. We can test and diagnose diseases before they become problems. Might not have even known that we were sick if it, if it weren't for the doctor. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's diagnosing the problem and he's doing it by prescribing the treatment. The problem is that we are sinners and our need is repentance. But what keeps us from repenting is that we don't think we need to. Let me share this from A.T. Robertson. He said, the self-satisfied are the hard ones to win. And they often resent efforts to win them to Christ. That might be you this morning. You might feel like you are doing okay. You might feel like you are being good enough. That you, you, you can do it all on your own. That you live a pretty good life. But I can promise you this. Your holiness, your perceived holiness, does not compare to that of the Pharisees. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees is their holiness isn't enough. Because the best of my holiness, the best of your holiness isn't enough. The holiness that we need comes from Christ. The holiness that we need is only available by his grace and by his blood. And so there's this warning here against self-satisfaction. See, we always read ourselves into the story. Maybe you read yourself into the story as just kind of a, a member of the audience observing what's happening. Or maybe you read yourself into the story as Levi, which would be true. But don't miss that many of us are the Pharisees. Right? That many of us are the ones who, who think that we can do it all on our own. Who think that we can be good enough. Who, who think that we can be righteous enough. And God help us if we're the Pharisees who look down on others because they're eating and drinking with sinners. What we need, whether you are the legalist like the Pharisee or the one who's given to sin like Levi, we need the same thing. We need God's grace. We need to beware of self-satisfaction. That's what the Pharisees were guilty of. See, the default mode of the human heart is self-satisfaction that tries to earn self-salvation. Problem is, there is no salvation found in yourself. There is no salvation found in who you are or in what you can do or in who you can be. There is salvation found in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what, 
That's what the Bible tells us, that Jesus has come to save. If Jesus has come to save, why would we try to save ourselves when Jesus has done it all for us? Why why would we try to save ourselves knowing that we will fail, but knowing that Jesus always succeeds? Jesus always saves. See, Jesus came for sinners like us to save us and to make us righteous like him. To bring it full circle, Jesus has practiced radical hospitality. He's practiced radical hospitality by coming to us, by saving us, by inviting us to his table. 